topic I think is really relevant to a lot of you. Uh, so let's go to God now and ask God that He will help me to preach faithfully and for you guys to really understand what God has to say about uh, sexuality and sex. So let's go to God in prayer. Dear Father, as we come before you today, we pray for your guidance to understand your word, to understand ourselves, to understand the world, to understand how we are to live before you in this world and how in Christ uh, we are to live our lives uh, filled with your knowledge. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. How does the world view sex? Okay, how does the world view sexuality? Okay, what is the moral framework by which the world views sex? Now, I think that, uh, oh, seeing that you're all much younger people here, you all should be really in touch with the world. But I do think that even for you guys who are quite young, if I were to ask you, what is the moral framework of the way the world views sex? You might have trouble understanding it. Uh, not because that you all are very square, or you know, you're all hermits living on an island, although we do live in an island. It's just that they are so the, 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 the pace in which the world has moved and has changed uh, makes it very hard to pin down how the world views sex and sexuality. But I do think that when it comes to the new norms of sexuality, there are four core principles. There are four core principles which sort of govern the way the world views sexuality and sex. The first one is the world views sex and sexual acts as having no intrinsic meaning in themselves. Uh, the world views that sex is just a physical activity uh, like uh, drinking coffee, uh, playing soccer, going to the gym, having a swim, playing tennis, kicking a soccer ball with friends, and shooting hoops. So really, when you, when you look at the world, the way the world looks at sexuality, it views sex as something pleasurable, full stop. And that's why the world sort of views sex in the sense of uh, there's a meaninglessness to sex. Now, you can sort of see this in uh, some of the movies that are out. So today, we've actually got lots of slides, okay? So I'm, I'm, I'm really glad that uh, the projector is working because the first se uh, session, it wasn't working properly. But so, if you I don't know if some of you have seen this movie. Okay, now you can put it up. Okay, Friends with Benefits. Now, you probably haven't uh, because it's probably rated not appropriate for some of you. But it sort of gives the point of view, even if you just see the title, the, the whole point is that friends do various things, right? Watch movies, eat meals, do uh, go bowling together, whatever. But in a sense nowadays, there's a sense where, you know, they're friends with additional benefits and their benefits are sexual. Okay, there's another movie with... Uh, Natalie Portman called No Strings Attached. And I think that's really apt, isn't it? Because that's the way the world sees sexuality, that sexuality is something that you engage in with no strings attached. There's no romantic involvement. There's no meaning in that sex act itself. There's no strings attached with it. So I do remember uh, my sister had a, a mutual friend who slept with another mutual friend that I knew. And I remember my sister asked uh, this friend of ours why she slept with this friend. And uh, this friend told my sister, it's just play, play. It's not a big deal. And I think that that really encapsulates how, for many people, the world views sex. That it's just play, play. It's just fun. You know, it's just something physical. There is no meaning attached in itself. Now, I think that the second principle in which the world views sex is that the world sees sexuality as something very important 
to our self-identity. Right? The world sees sex as something very important as part of my sexual identity. That's the way the world views it. And it seems as if the world sort of says that we have a duty of care to our identity to express that identity sexually. So when you think of uh, the newspapers or the way people describe themselves in sexual terms, so people who come out as homosexual or gay uh, will say to them that, well, they'll say to other people that, you know, I'm being true to myself. I'm just being authentically human. Now, this is my human identity and I'm just displaying it to people. I was reading in an Australian newspaper of a young girl who had a sex change operation and, and, and the way the newspaper reported it was that it was a courageous decision for this person to realize their full humanity. Uh, when people divorce their spouses and move on to other partners, uh, people describe it as liberation, realizing my potential as a person. So again, uh, some of you may have heard of this or watched this, uh, Sex in the City. Next slide. Oh, hey, no, you don't go back to the beginning. Ah, okay, this one, right? And um, if uh, I haven't seen this myself, but if you read about it, if you think about it, and you read the synopsis in the Wikipedia, you see that sex forms a very important part of these four women's lives. Right? It defines who they are, shapes who they are, in terms of their relationship. Now, this is very different from the past. Now, obviously, not many of you remember the past, right? But in the past, sex was a very private matter, right? So sex was something that you did in your own bedroom. This is your own private domain which nobody had a right to intrude upon. Right? This is the privacy of my own home. You have no right to intrude in this. But now, what's happened is, your, your, your sexuality has moved out of the private domain of your bedroom into the public sphere where you're supposed to express who you are. And who you are is part of sexuality. Now, I remember when I was in university, I had a friend from Hong Kong. And I knew him for quite a long time. And, and, and later on, as he finished, was finishing his degree, he, he expressed uh, to a few of us that he had, was gay and that he was going to be engaged in this homosexual, or be open about his homosexuality. But the thing I really realized and was struck at that point in time was how, after that point in time, his, his gay identity became the predominant identity of his life. You know, it's like every other thing that identified him as a person became subsumed in his gay identity. So before he, you know, came out as a gay, he was a Hong Kong person that I knew, he was an Asian, he had hobbies, right? He was one of these people who uh, really liked uh, using binoculars and looking at planes, and he could sort of look at a plane up there and tell you, okay, that what, what, what sort of plane that was, right? He'd probably be arrested as a terrorist these days, right? But he was really good at, you know, like he could just see this plane, okay, this... So he had all these hobbies and everything, but after he came out as a gay person, he, all these identities that he had, overseas student, all these interests, they all became subsumed in his sexual identity. Right, so in, in a way... Our sexuality today sort of answers that question for many people in terms of uh, who I am. So the next slide. Okay, so the question of who I am nowadays is increasingly, for many people, I'm not saying you, I'm just saying this is the way the world generally is working and moving, towards a sexual identity. Right, am I heterosexual? Or am I gay? Am I lesbian? Or am I bi? Or am I transgender? Am I hot? Am I a hunk? 
Am I cute? Am I a babe? Right? I mean, even in, in, in the Straits Times today, in the sports section, you have hot bots. I mean, right, you're supposed to be there reading about sports and you've always got hot bots there, right? It's like, right, it's like, you know, increasingly, your identity is who you are sexually. So apparently in America, if you want to insult someone, it's very common now to call the person a virgin. If you call someone a virgin, that's an insult. And I think that what it really shows is that from uh, that world perspective, if you do not have a sexual identity, then somehow you are less of a person, a realized person than someone who has a sexual identity. So again, you may have uh, heard of this movie, you know, Steve Carroll, I'm sure many of the young people. See, I, 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 I presume that being younger, you all know many more of the movies that I'm showing up here than the older generation, right? So, like here, it caricatures someone who is seen as abnormal, isn't it? Because he's older, but yet he doesn't have a sexual identity. So that's the second thing. The world views the identity in tr- through the lens now in terms of sexuality. Right? That's how people perceive one another, their identity in the public domain. The third thing is, the only rule that really matters in the world nowadays, in terms of sex and sexual relations, is consent. Freely given consent. In the world we live in, it doesn't uh, see it in terms of the moral framework, uh, any other rule except, is there freely given consent? As long as there's consent between two consenting adults, then no one is hurt, there's no harm done, then you cannot judge sexuality. Right? That's the way that the world, the moral framework of the world is today. So I'm sure uh, some of you may have heard of this book. Uh, next slide. Okay, uh, Fifty Shades of Grey. Right? Have you all heard of that? Yeah. Okay, the next slide, you can sort of see it from the front, right? So this is a best-selling book nowadays. And really, if you, if you, even if you went back to the 80s, which is just like 20 or 30 years ago, this sort of book would not be in our bookshops. Right? This sort of book will not be allowed to be on the shelves. But because the new norm of our worldview of sexuality is different, it, it, it is now very mainstream. Right? You can have books on sadism and bondage and, and, and sadomasochism because the only thing that matters now is consent. As long as people consent, it doesn't matter how they have sex, it's fine. And in fact, uh, if you look at the next slide, uh, this is a very uh, respectable newspaper in England called The Guardian. Even The Guardian in, in England say that, well, you should be teaching young children about all these more extreme sexual practices because as long as there's consent, then it's okay. And that's why when you look at the newspapers, if you look at the media and the world today, that, that the only thing that causes outrage in terms of sexual practice is rape and pedophilia. Because in rape, there is no consent. And in pedophilia, the child is considered too young to be considered old enough to give consent. See, that's why when you look in the world today, in the prism of the worldview of sex, the only things that really outrage the world are rape and pedophilia. Everything else is fine. So what's the fourth principle of the worldview of sexuality? One thing that nowadays uh, people, 
expect to be affirmed uh, about their moral sexual choices. Uh, in the past, uh, to a certain degree, people were expected to be tolerant of your sexual choices, but now, I think the world has come to the stage where you, you, they expect to be affirmed for their sexual choices. To not affirm me for my sexual choice is to infringe on my rights. On my rights. Now, I listened to... Um, uh, okay, so if you look out here, the slide. All right. Okay, next slide. Okay, not, not this one, not yet. Now, I listened to uh, Gold 90 FM. I'm sure none of you listen to Gold 90 FM. Okay, you probably listen to Spotify or something like that. And I remember, you know, Gold 90 FM is seen as such a fuddy-duddy old station, right? I mean, really. Okay. But a few years ago, I actually wrote in to complain to Gold 90 FM because of what the DJ said. The DJ said, uh, to paraphrase, he said, there's no place for hate in this world. And if you do not accept a person's sexual identity for what they are, then you are a, a hater. See, that's where the worldview has come to see sexual choices and sexuality. If you do not affirm my sexual identity, then what are you? You're not holding a moral position. You're a hater. You are a bigot. You, you know, you, you don't, you're not accepting me and affirming my sexual choice. So I remember watching this movie a few years ago. None of you have probably watched this movie, but it's quite good. I can recommend. Oh, no, not yet. Okay, it's called Everybody's Fine. Okay, everybody's fine. This is uh, Robert De Niro. And in the movie, it was, it's a really quite a good movie. You can watch it because what happens is this guy, uh, Robert De Niro, he's an old man and he, his wife is the one who usually organizes. He has four kids and they all live away from home. And, and the wife is the one who organizes the Thanksgiving dinner. You know, a Thanksgiving dinner is very popular. I mean, it's very important in America. Everybody has to come back for Thanksgiving dinner. So the wife dies. So it's left to Robert De Niro to organize the Thanksgiving dinner and obviously nobody comes, right? So he's very upset. Why is it nobody's coming to Thanksgiving dinner? So he goes around America to surprise each of his children to wish them Thanksgiving. Except he learns that they are not what they are, right? So one's a drug addict, another one is a, like a dropout, another one is a lesbian, another one is a divorcee. But by the end of the movie, uh, next slide, okay, the next one down, okay, uh, he affirms, so they all come together for dinner, as you can see, this is the last movie, scene of the movie, they all come together, and uh, he, he, he affirms them all for what they are, for who they are. And I think that this is the message of the movie, isn't it? Everybody is fine. Everybody's fine. Not fine as in their well, but everybody is Good. Everybody's doing well, right, in who they are. And I think that's, that's the, the, the essence of the view of this world, that you must affirm everybody for who you are, even in terms of your sexuality. You must affirm them. Because nowadays, people see their sexual identity as a right. This is who I am. If you do not affirm me, then you are denying me my right. You're, you're violating my rights. So in the past, uh, next slide, okay, um, when the, the blacks had the civil rights movement, they, they were proud of being black. Today, uh, that 
that that uh, civil right movement is taken up by the gays, right? The gays will say they are proud to be to be to be gay. And essentially, if you do not accept my sexuality, then you are you are hating me, you're you're intolerant of me, and you are actually denying who I really am. You're not affirming me. Okay? Now, next slide. So you can see all these uh, slides, right, where you you know if you do not accept me in my sexuality, then you are actually a hater. You're not, you're, not, you're, not, you're not affirming me. Now, recently, if you look at this slide, uh, I'm, this guy is... You remember there was a recent thing last week about this, the, the nudist guy? So there's this guy, right, in the newspaper, and uh, he's, a, he's a nudist. You don't know what a nudist is? Okay, this is a guy who likes to go around public naked, lah, okay? He feels, or she feels, this need to go around in public in naked. In a, in a state of nakedness. So anyway, this guy in Singapore, he went to Penang with a group of other nudists and decided to be nude on the beach. Uh, that would be okay, except they decided to film it and then they put it on social media. And you know, all these things happened, right? Everybody uploaded it. Then the Penang government got unhappy. Then the Malaysian government got unhappy. So anyway, so now I think he's in jail or arrested or something in Malaysia. Lah. Now, uh, I'm not really interested in the nudism thing. But I think what's really interesting is what someone wrote uh, in response to this nudist thing. Okay, So in the Facebook, someone actually wrote this. And it's very interesting because if you read what this person wrote, he expresses exactly the worldview when it comes to sexuality. So pay attention to what this person wrote. He wrote, this is a classic case of society versus individual. The individual did not harm or hurt anyone. Okay, remember what the first rule was, or the second rule was consent, right? He didn't hurt or harm harm anybody, right? So, why is he doing wrong? But the behavior is not as per society's norm. Society will force the individual to conform, being like this, and it will always be like this. See, you notice the worldview here. The worldview is. My sexuality is my right as an individual. Your view is imposing or forcing me or denying me or violating my rights to be an individual living freely in this society. You're forcing me. right? And I think that that's why today our sexuality is seen in terms of my rights. I, 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 I demand to express my sexuality in a public domain. If you do not affirm me, you are actually hating me. You're hating who I am. And that's why in the next slide, if you, this is the June um, uh, cover of the uh, Time magazine. It wasn't in Singapore, but it was in America. And you can see that uh, this is a very apparently quite famous, but I don't know who, it's a he, but it's actually become a she, right? And it says uh, the transgender tipping point because this person, uh, I can't remember what her name is or his name is, but he is um, uh, a very famous person now as an actor. Lah. Okay? But I want you to notice the next slide where it says America's next civil rights frontier. See, it's, my sexuality is, is actually part of who I am. It is my right. So that is the fourth way in which the fourth principle in which the world actually has a framework of the principles of the way the world sees sexuality. Okay, so the first one was, uh, sex had no intrinsic value, no meaning. Our sexuality is a very important part of my identity. 
The only rule that applies to sex is freely given consent. And the fourth rule is, I expect to be affirmed for my sexual choices. If you do not affirm me, you're violating my civil right. Now, how do we feel uh, as Christians? How should we respond as Christians? Now, I think as a Christian, I, I feel very uncomfortable, and I, and I think we should feel uncomfortable with the world sexuality, the framework of the world's uh, sexuality. If we feel comfortable with the world's framework, then obviously we are not following what the Bible is saying. Because the world and God's sexuality is actually quite different, very different, almost opposite ends of the pole. Because the first thing we learn about sexuality in the Bible, according to God, is everything is under the lordship of God and the rulership of Jesus. See, first and foremost, we recognize that God is the creator of the world, He is the sustainer of the world, and we need to bow the knee before Him. Right? Before anything else, that's what we learn in the Bible. We learn that Jesus died for our sins, He rose from the, sit, from the dead, and if we accept Him as Savior, we also accept Him as Lord. Right? So actually to demand sex as a right goes right back to the heart of sin. Right? Sin is rebellion against God, rebellion against God's rule. Now, we did this, um, next slide, we uh, sort of con condensed the Bible into uh, this track, Two Ways to Live, many years ago, right, evangelistic track. And if you want to you know, like, look at the whole sweep of the Bible, uh, right at the very beginning when God made the world, it was a perfect world where there was a perfect relationship with God because we acknowledge God as God, isn't it? He was ruler over our life. But sin came into the world, Right? And, but sin came into the world, humanity rebelled, and we chose to reject God as ruler, but we make ourselves little gods. See, so if you look at that picture, we become a little god. Oh no, next one. Okay, so we reject God, and we make ourselves like little gods. We choose to exercise our own rule over our life. Okay, next slide. But then God gives us what we ask for, and He cuts us off, and it leads to death and hell, God's wrath and punishment. Okay, next slide. Okay, so God rejects us and we no longer are under God. We face punishment. Next slide. Okay, but Jesus comes and he dies on the cross. And next slide. Okay, and as a result, our sins are taken away. And last slide. But Jesus doesn't remain dead, he rises from the dead, and because he rises from the dead, he is our ruler. Okay, next slide. So God and Jesus are together our ruler on this earth. And therefore, if you look at Romans chapter 14, it says, He who regards one day as special does so to the Lord. He who eats meat eats to the Lord, for he gives thanks to God. And he who abstains does so to the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself alone, and none of us dies to himself alone. If we live, we live to the Lord. If we die, we die to the Lord. <clears throat> so whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. For this very reason, Christ died and returned to life, so that he might be the Lord of both the dead and the living. So once you understand the framework of who we are, then God and Jesus must rule over our sexuality. Right? It's not me saying, 
The only rule that matters is freely given consent, or that is my civil right. No, it is God who rules my sex life. And therefore, I really like the title of this book, right? Next slide. It's very small, but sorry, but it says there that basically sex is in the service of God. Even our sex life is made to serve God. Now, I think that this is so different from the way the world looks at it. Because there is no right, there is no civil right to sex in our life. See, sex is not a moral civil, it's not a civil right, it is a moral choice. See, a civil right is uh, my skin color, my cultural or racial category. But sex is choosing to do something. When I have sex, whom I have sex with, how I have sex. Now, there's some choices in life where it really doesn't matter what I do, right? Uh, it doesn't matter what toothpaste I have. It doesn't matter uh, what sport I play. Uh, to a certain degree, it doesn't matter what football team I support. But, there are many things which it really matters to God. Whether I lie or not whether I cheat or not, whether I love my neighbor or not, whether I do good or whether I do evil. And sexual acts fall into those moral categories. See, civil rights, uh, whether I'm black or brown or yellow or white, whether I'm old or young, whether I'm male or female, whether I'm rich or poor, it doesn't matter before God. I'm not more sinful because I'm a black man or a white man, right? I'm not more evil because I'm an older man or a younger man. It doesn't make me less righteous because I'm a woman or a man. These are not moral categories, right? So in Galatians chapter 3, uh, next slide, God actually says that before Him we are all equal in terms of these uh, cultural racial categories. You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to his promise. Now, one of the problems, I think, in this world is that people try to make uh, sexuality a right because of genetics. So people think that there, there is this thing called a gay gene, right? You know, a gay gene? So I'm gay because genetically... There's a, there's a gene which makes me gay. So it's part of my civil rights because it's who I am. So I've got no choice. I've got to act this way because I've got this gay gene. Now, on the just a few days ago, next slide. Oh, yeah, but you can't see very well. Yeah. In, uh, I think it's 28. Hey, no, go back. Yeah. There was an article in the Telegraph. You can go to the internet and look for it. Where they actually found the latest research uh, about whether there's a gay gene or not. So what they did was, next slide. They, um, they looked at 400 sets of twins. Now, the reason why they do that is because, you see, if, if there's a gene, right, let's say I have a Chinese gene, okay, makes my skin yellow. Obviously, if I have a twin, we have the same gene, we look Chinese, right? Cannot be that I look Chinese, he looks like Brad Pitt or something, right? It's like, <laughs> it's a gene, right? You know what I mean? So, theoretically, if you want to do a test, then if there's a gay gene, then that means that if there are two sets of twins, both must be, must be gay, must be homosexual in that sense. But what they actually found, uh, next slide, 
is that it's not always the case, you see. In fact, there's, quite, there's not an exact correlation. In fact, what they said here, if you read really carefully, is that homosexuality is only partly genetic, with sexuality mostly based on environmental and social factors. Okay, it's an oversimplification to suggest there was a gay gene. We don't, we don't think genetics is the whole story. It is not. Interestingly, there are no similar genes to have been discovered to influence female homosexuality. Nobody has found something like this in women. So the, the author of the study said, environmental, environmental factors are more likely to be the biggest impact on homosexuality. Now what it means is that ultimately, whether you have a genetic disposition or not, doesn't give you liberty or the right to act in a certain way. So, uh, do you know there's an alcoholic gene? So, uh, apparently people in Russia and people in Scandinavia, they have this gene which makes them more susceptible to drinking lots of alcohol and being alcoholics. But just because you have an alcoholic gene doesn't give you the liberty to say, okay guys, I've got this gene, I'm going to go out and drink now, right? Because alcoholism is not good for you. So in the same way, whether you have a genetic makeup in some way, doesn't give us the excuse to exercise uh, my disposition. See, one day, uh, they find a gene for lying. Do, do, does that mean that I have, I, have a, I have a reason to then go out to keep lying some more? Or maybe there's a gene that, that predisposes me to stealing. Does that mean I, I can go to the shopping mall and when I steal things, say, oh, I've got this gene, right, so I can do it. Or maybe there's a gene which predisposes me to being a nudist. So that means I can walk around naked all the time and say, I've got this gene, so you know, it's okay, I can do it. So, now the reason why I'm saying this is not uh, to, to bash you over the head with a self-righteous attitude. I know it's very hard when you are struggling with sexuality and sexual issues. And uh, we all do struggle, I struggle too, everybody struggles with different things, and some more than others with sexuality. But I think the Christian view is, is that we must struggle with our sexuality based on God being our ruler. We cannot allow ourselves a cheap pass and say, oh, I've got a gene, so therefore I don't have to work at this issue. I don't have to struggle. I don't have to work hard and carry my cross on this issue. But that is the lie, I think, that the world is selling us. It sort of says, well, because you have this gene or because this is the way the world is, it's okay, you can do it. But ultimately, it's still a choice, right? So I think that's the first thing the Bible tells us, that God and Jesus are the rulers of our sex life. The second thing is God calls us to the good life. Now I think that part of the problem is the world, or maybe even you as you sit here today, you may see God as a killjoy. Right? You, you think that God equals no fun. I don't know, do you ever think like that? That, you know, God equals no fun? Obviously, I think the world thinks like that because uh, some of the expressions it uses seem to, to, to suggest so. You know, sometimes people say, oh, you know, this chocolate is so good, it is sinful. Right? Have, have any, ever heard anybody talk like that? Or, you know, when people say doing something naughty means something exciting. Or there's even a restaurant on Holland Road called Original Sin. Okay. Now, the Bible tells us a very different story. God is a good God. 
who loves us, who showed his love so much he sent us Jesus, he is not intending for us to not have fun. He wants us to have fun. He wants us to enjoy life. He means good for us. So 1 Timothy chapter 4, which is up here, there were some people in the church at the time who were forbidding people to marry and ordering them to abstain from certain foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and who know the truth. For everything God created is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving because it is consecrated by the word of God and by prayer. See, God here made sex for good. right? There were some people who were forbidding, forbidding people from marrying because they thought sex was bad. Sex is good. God made sex to be enjoyed except he meant it to be enjoyed within the context of marriage between a man and a woman. You know, some people think that the, the original sin uh, was sex. Okay, now, the original sin was not sex. Uh, the original sin was not a man and woman eating the green apple or the red apple because they didn't eat the apple. We don't know what fruit it was. It may have been a durian for all we know. All right. And the original sin, you, you can go Google it on the internet. Some people actually think the original sin was man and woman discovering sex. The original sin was not man or woman discovering sex. Sex was already in the garden, in the goodness of creation. But God creates a framework in which sex is a privilege, not a right. It is the privilege of a marriage between a man and woman in expression of love. Now this goes totally against the worldview which says that sex has no meaning or value, right? Because the world sort of treats sex like a toy, right? You know, it's like you play with it for a while, then you throw it away. But God sees sex as something infinitely valuable, and it's a very powerful thing, right, sex. The world sort of sees sex as like no different from jogging or swimming and everything. But actually, from the Bible's point of view, sex is very powerful. Relationally, emotionally, and spiritually. So I remember uh, I was reading this thing by C.S. Lewis, and C.S. Lewis was a writer uh, of uh, Narnia and everything, and he, he lived in the 40s, and he wrote this very powerful thing. He said, when a man wants sex, he does not really want the woman. The woman happens to be the necessary piece of apparatus for his lust. He cares for her after the act as much as someone cares for a carton of cigarettes after he has smoked the cigarettes. Now, obviously, that's a very harsh thing to say. But you can sort of identify with it, isn't it? Like, imagine you finish smoking the cigarettes. Do you still keep the carton? No, you throw it away, isn't it? It's a disposable view of sex. But that's the way the world sees it. But it's very different from how God sees sex. God sees sex as something very valuable, something to be cherished and only nourished within the context of marriage as an expression of love. Now, the problem is... Whenever we think we're smarter than God, we're actually very foolish. So all around the world, uh, when you see the framework of sex, what picture do people get? The, the, the picture that people get is the more sex you have, with the more partners you have, should equal more fun, right? More satisfaction, more pleasure, right? Isn't that the picture when you watch a lot of movies, isn't it? Isn't that why many people want to become rock stars and movie stars? Right? Because the more sex you have, more people, the more fun you should have. 
But survey after survey, statistically speaking, the most sexually satisfied people are people in marriage with one partner. In fact, some surveys have shown that the most satisfied married couples are those who go to church, right, who have a very strong religious belief. Because that's the way that God has made sex. God has made sex to be enjoyed within the context of relationship, not as a disposable thing. Now, there's actually uh, this guy which you, I'm sure you all never heard of because the people in the first service didn't hear of him. Okay, next slide. Now, you all don't know Dan Quayle or Murphy Brown, right? So I'll just explain back, background to you. Oh, you know, okay. Uh, oh, I know. Okay. okay. You all know who Obama is? Who's Obama? Okay. Obama's the president of the uh, United States, right? Who was the president of the United States before Obama? George Bush, right? Uh, uh, George Bush, okay? So George Bush. George Bush ran against this guy called Dan Quayle. Okay, Dan Quayle was a Democrat. And what happened was, uh, a few weeks before the election, the voting, this Dan Quayle criticized uh, this character in a comedy called Murphy Brown. And Murphy Brown was a single, uh, very famous newscaster who chose to have a baby on her own. She wanted to become a single mother. So Duane Quayle said that she was a bad model for families in America. And then everybody criticized him. Because you know why? What's the worldview now? It is my right, right? It's my right. I, I, can, I, I can express my sexuality however I want. Whether I want to be a single mother, whether I want to cohabitate with people, whether I want to marry. It's my choice. You have no right to criticize me. But interestingly enough, 10 years later, in the Washington Post, they actually wrote this article and said, it turns out that actually Dan Quayle was right to criticize Murphy Brown during that time. Because they actually say that statistically in America now, uh, that all these problems are happening because people choose not to get married and to express their sexuality in marriage. In America today, under 30, more than half of people having children are doing it outside of marriage. On the whole of American society, 41% of children are born outside of marriage. But statistically speaking, again, looking at just pure statistics, okay, People who cohabitate have a much, much higher chance of breaking up either before they get married or even after they get married. People who cohabitate for whatever reason uh, are economically less well-off than other people who get married. Their children, uh, for whatever reason, nobody knows why compared to marriage, cohabitating couples, their children do worse at school, they have a higher unemployment rate, they have a higher suicide rate. And they are much more susceptible to uh, child abuse. Right? But more than that, uh, worse than that even, single parents, uh, apparently in America, are the recipe to poverty. You want to get poor really fast, you become a single parent. Because if you're a single parent, you have no, you, you, how can you do so many things? You've got to look after your child. And usually single parents in America are who? It's the women, right? They are the ones which are left with the kids after the, the, the father goes off in a cohabitating relationship. And they've actually found that they would reduce poverty in America by 20% just by getting people to marry more, the single parents to marry more. 
See, so God is not a killjoy. God is not actually, you know, making life difficult or less fun for people. He's actually teaching us the right way to live because He created the world. He will know how best that we should express our sexuality. Now, I just want to give you one last example here because I thought it was such a powerful one. I want to show you a slide of a lifestyle decision, okay? So, next slide. This is a lifestyle choice that will lead you to have these characteristics. If you choose this lifestyle, you will significantly decrease your likelihood of establishing and preserving a successful marriage. You will experience a 5-10 to 10 year decrease in life expectancy. You possibly expect chronic or potentially fatally, fatal liver disease. You will inevitably, inevitably get fatal esophageal cancer. You may experience pneumonia, internal bleeding, you will suffer serious mental disabilities and have a high risk of suicide. What lifestyle is this? This is the lifestyle of alcoholism. Right, it's alcoholism. If you drink a lot of alcohol, this is what happens to you. You do not wish uh, this sort of lifestyle on your friend, your relative, your family member, right? Even though they say, oh, I've got this gene, I've got this, I've got this alcoholic gene, right? But do you still wish for them to have this lifestyle? No, isn't it? It's not a lifestyle that you recommend. Okay, let me give you a, another set of statistics from another lifestyle. If you choose this lifestyle choice, you will significantly decrease the likelihood of establishing and preserving a successful marriage. You have a 25 to 30 year decrease in life expectancy. You experience chronic, potentially fatal liver disease. You have a frequent a fatal immune-related diseases, the frequently fatal rectal cancer, multiple bowel and other infectious diseases, and you have a higher risk of suicide. Okay, what is this lifestyle? Okay, this is the male homosexual gay lifestyle. Okay, now even if you have the gay uh, a gay gene or your, your this is your disposition, <coughs> this is not the lifestyle that is good for you, right? This is not a good lifestyle choice. But yet, the world's expression of sexuality says that we choose whatever lifestyles you want and, and it's all good. Everybody's fine. Everybody's fine. But in God's eyes, it is not fine. It is actually a perversion of what He intends of the good in our life. He wants good for us, but we choose not to have good. And now I'm coming to the point of the sermon where I'm going to say something very politically incorrect. Because if you choose a sexual lifestyle which is inconsistent with what God wants, it is not the suffering of this world. It is not the beginning of suffering. It's actually not the end of suffering, but it's the beginning of suffering. Because you suffer in this world. But more than that, you've actually chosen to turn away from God and turn away from Jesus. And you've made sex to be an idol, and as a result, you will face judgment before God because you've asked God to go away from your life, and you've made yourself God. See, when you choose bad sexual lifestyle practices, it is not the end of suffering, it is the beginning of suffering. It begins in this world, yes, but it doesn't end in this world. It continues on to the world to come. See, we don't like to use the word hell in this world. But truly, if you choose to make sex 
the choice over God, then you've actually condemned yourself to hell. You know, it's really funny because if I when I when I put the word hell in my iPhone, uh, my phone auto corrects it to heal. Right? Every time I put hell, it says heal. So even even my my iPhone doesn't like the word hell. Right? So I think what really shows is that we 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 don't want to take God's point of view into account. And, and, and really, if you choose to live this way, it actually leads to hell. Now, the last point is, ultimately, our identity is not our sexual identity, but our identity is in Christ. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, it says, <clears throat> Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, no idolaters, no adulterers, no male prostitutes, no homosexual offenders, no thieves, no the greedy, no drunkards, no slanderers, no swindlers who inherit the kingdom of God. But that is what some of you were. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. See, what is our identity now? It is not a sexual identity. It is not whether I'm a hot bod or whether I'm a virgin, or whether I'm gay, or, or, or transgender, or heterosexual, I am, I'm, I'm washed. I'm sanctified. I am now in Christ. So the expression of what I do comes from who I am. I am in Christ. I'm saved. And because of that, my sexuality must reflect that. So as we come to the end of this, I guess, this sermon looking at sexuality, although next week we're going to have another one, but we're going to look at it from a different angle in terms of how to deal with the issues that we face. We really have to ask ourselves, which sexuality do we follow? Do we follow the human sexuality? Or do we choose to follow God's sexuality? Where is my identity found? Where is my identity found? Where Do I really believe that God is good and intends good for me in the expression of my sexuality? Do I really recognize God as God and Jesus as my ruler? Because it really does make a difference in my life, the choice that I make. You know, there was a survey done uh, a few months ago. I remember reading newspaper. Someone was telling me, or someone was telling me about how they did a survey of, of, of television shows and movies. And they wanted to see how many movies have at least five minutes of conversation between women which don't relate to sex or men. Right, think about it. So all you want is five minutes of conversation between two women in a movie which doesn't relate to sex or men. And actually they found that very few women, uh, very few movies fulfill that criteria. I mean, you imagine a lot of the movies you watch, most of the conversation between women relate to men or sex or something else. They're not talking about, you know, uh, like stuff, normal stuff that people talk about. I mean, the reason is because we live in such a sex-saturated society, right? That sees our identity in sex, our, our media is full of sex, we, we you know, perceive ourselves as sexual people. But we are not like that, you see. We are not like the world. We see ourselves as people who have been washed clean and sanctified by Jesus Christ. And therefore, Jesus must be the ruler of our sex lives and our sexuality. Let's go to God in prayer.